You're listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting for the Pacific Northwest. For more information, log on to www.whereralltrailsend.com. Follow your customs for grace. At the waters to the west lies this camp that we ask blessed. And with this blessing we ask for strength, for scouting skills we've used at length. And with this blessing we ask for help in remembering friendships we have felt. And now as we leave, may our spirit live on here at Camp Parsons. Amen. Aiden Powell once said, A week of camp life is worth six months of theoretical teaching in the meeting room. Welcome to the third episode of Where All Trails End, where we explore what it is like to attend Camp Parsons. In this episode, you'll hear the stories of scouts, young and old, that have spent at least a week at summer camp on the Hood Canal in Washington State. You'll get the chance to experience the campfire skits, the pier jump, the hall blue, and you'll hear from the scouts that come every year and the ones that are coming to Camp Parsons for the first time. And you might, just might, learn what makes a week Camp Parsons so special. This is where all trails end. Stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. Camp Parsons. This summer marks our centennial anniversary as well as our 101st summer of consecutive scouting here on the Hood Canal. After 100 summers of serving only boys, we're proud to, for the first time ever, open our program to girls as well. Camp Parsons is one of the oldest and most highly regarded scouting summer camps in the nation. As I speak, the old and the new, represented by these candles, come together to form one. The unifying thread throughout all these years have been the staff and the scouts that represent an unbroken chain dating back to 1919. You are the newest link of the next chain. Please be aware of the history and traditions of scouting excellence that surround you. Welcome to Camp Parsons. At a troop meeting, they hand out a 1950 camp brochure, and they say, well, we're going to go on the second session. So um, if you're signing up for it, sign up for that one. So I go talk to my mom, and she signs me up. They take me down uh, one morning to go to camp, and I get on a boat with a bunch of other kids because everybody went by boat. And we, we, we got on a boat called the Concordia, and we went through the locks. And then we took this sea voyage of a few hours off to Camp Parsons. Well, if you're only 11, 
this becomes a magic ride. I mean, this is unbelievable. You're crossing the water, and and you uh, it seems like you've been on the boat for hours and hours and hours and hours or days. And we came around the Tuanus Peninsula on a nice, beautiful day in late June, and we could see the Olympic Mountains and all their snow dazzling above the water. And one of the older boys points to the house on the end of the pier, which there was a house on the end of the pier then. And he says, see, see, see that? That's the, the shoreline. That's Camp Parsons. And I'll tell you, it was like I'd gone to Oz or somewhere. It was this magical place. Please say your name and the years you worked on staff. Alan Hutchison worked on the Camp Parsons staff in 52 and 57. My first year as a camper was 47. So tell me about Camp Parsons in 1947. Alan. <clears throat> I came over from, from Seattle on the Virginia Five as a camper. Uh, it took four and a half hours from Seattle to the camp. The most interesting thing, I think, more than anything else, was the two-week camp period where the first week you were in camp working on scouting skills and all sorts of things of that sort, and then we would spend the second week up in the Olympic Mountains. And uh, they would, the staff would uh, give you an option depending on your size and your skills as to what hike you were going on. The fun thing was that as soon as you got back on Friday, they had fried chicken. <laughs> and it was uh, a very special day as far as uh, reporting on how the hikes went and things of that sort. What do you remember from your time? Anybody who'd been on the camp, uh, been at the camp for three years had the choice of going to the Mariner section, which is a senior scouting section, or up to the Ranger Lodge up on the hill. And uh, so I got to be in the Mariner section, and that was the last year before they tore it down. There was a storm that week that I was in there, and I thought I was on the Titanic. Can you describe the building for those that aren't familiar with Camp Parsons? There was a social room on the first floor, and the skipper and his staff lived in an apartment right next to it, and then each of what you would call patrols in a regular troop were on the second floor, and we were able to... Um, so it was a building out on a pier. Yeah, and it was out on the pier. Uh, the second week you were in the Mariner section, you took a cruise. Um, I got sick, so I didn't go on the cruise. What type of boat would you cruise on? They were whale boats that were given to us by the Navy shipyard in Bremerton. They would seat about eight rowers, and they also had a sail. And we found a paddle, uh, a broken paddle, in the museum at Camp Parsons at one time, and I noticed that my brother's name was on it, and also the name of an individual who was a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy at, at this time. So I took a picture of it and gave it to my brother Ronnie, and all of a sudden he started talking about this trip to Seattle. And I said, what do you mean, you went to Seattle? And he said, yeah. It was in, I think it was 1944, right in the middle of the war. They put a sail up as soon as they turned the point at Jackson Cove, and they were up at point no point in less than half a day. Now, they were supposed to be there somewhere around Wednesday or Thursday. So here they were up there the very first day they were out on the water. So they decided they wanted, why don't we go to Seattle? So they rowed across and then started down the coastline. It got dark, and all of a sudden they could, they could hear a tugboat coming towards them, and they were racing like heck trying to find a flashlight when a great big beam of light came down on them, and the tugboat captain said, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and anyway, they, they moored at... Uh, Ray's Boathouse in Ballard, and um, then the next morning, 
one of the guys who had gone home and came back had an outboard motor. So they put that on the, on the whale boat and they got in and the outboard motor wouldn't work. Hmm. But what they didn't know was that the individual who eventually became a rear admiral in the Navy hmm. had, had connections and a Foss tug was coming through the Seattle locks with a boom of logs. So they tied up to the back of the boom and they were up at the top. How long would that trip have taken normally, do you think? Normally it would probably have taken without wind and, and uh, that type of help they got. It probably would have taken a, a week and a half. They were in Seattle that night, the first the, the night. The first night, one day, wow. So when they got up to Point No Point, they decided they needed to stop there and camp out. And a farmer came over the levee and said, what are you guys doing? <clears throat> and they said, well, we're going to be sleeping here. We're heading for Camp Parsons. He said, well, don't fix dinner. And so the next thing he did it was he brought down steaks. And they had a big steak fry that night uh, on the beach. I asked... Uh, Horton Smith, who was the ad eventually became the admiral, why they weren't intercepted by the Coast Guard since it was still in the middle of World War II. And he said, I have no idea why they didn't. But he said that I, I know I would have been fired by the time I got back to Camp Parsons if it hadn't been the fact that they couldn't find anybody else. So yeah. that was the story of one of those cruises. It seems to be a common theme that somebody does something and they say, well, I should have been fired, but they didn't have yeah, anybody right. else to do the job. They were having some real problems during the war because of the um, finding the right people. Now, that's, that's pretty dangerous, though, going back to that. I mean, they, you said they were in a boat at night. I mean, they could have died out there. Oh, yeah. Shipwrecked. I, it, it's kind of like the trips in the Olympics. Uh, we have pictures of kids climbing Mount Olympus with a quarter-inch hemp rope, and they were wearing pajama bottoms over their scout shorts so they wouldn't get sunburned, and a towel over their head, and a stave of a piece of wood, and that's how they climbed the mountain without any, I don't think they ever heard of ice axes in those days. Wow. Why we didn't kill anybody, I'll never know. But, but somebody did fall at one point. Well, that was an accident where a guy was on the trail and he turned around to talk to somebody and he walked right off the trail. Hmm. Alan Hutchinson is a co-curator along with Bruce Johnson of the Camp Parsons Museum. That scout who lost his life in the Olympics is featured in an exhibit in the lower room of that museum. As Hutchinson will explain, in Camp Parsons' 101-year history, records exist of another scout who lost his life at the camp itself, though this tragedy occurred when camp was not in session. Former staff members contend that death led to the eventual demolition of the Mariner's Building, situated at the end of the Camp Parsons Pier. What about the scout that fell off the end of the pier? That was not while well, camp was in session. From what I understand and from what I've studied in our minutes and so on, a... Um, Sea Scout ship came up to camp and asked the ranger if they could sleep in the mariner section that night. And I guess from what they finally figured out afterwards, this young man sl was sleepwalking and went right out the window. They didn't find his body till the next morning. Nobody heard anything that night. But that's the only fatality we had in the camp itself that I've been able to uncover anyway. They're, they're pretty careful about, you know, making sure that things are safe. Well, it's incredible when you think about all the, the crazy things people used to do, climbing 72-foot tall signal towers. <laughs> yeah. I was, the signal tower, I never saw the signal tower. I've seen plenty of pictures of it, but I never saw it in, in action. It came down in 19... I think it was 40 or 41, uh, the National Council said it had to come down. The original single t uh, signal tower was 62 feet, and they used it as an inside 
scaffolding to build the new one. You know, when you see the ladders going up on these things and the kids crawling all over them, it's amazing that nobody was hurt. One of the guys who eventually became the scout executive in Seattle was a waterfront director. And uh, since they decided to take the tower down, he was to take the camp truck and they cut off the bottom of the tower, but what they didn't know was the tower was six feet in the ground. Hmm. And so they cut it off at, um, at ground level, and it just stood there. They thought maybe it would topple, but it just stood there because of its weight and its size. And so then they drew straws, and they got somebody to go about three-quarters of the way up the tower and put a rope around it. I have a video of him somewhere where he talks about the fact that when they hooked it to the truck and he was driving it diagonally across the parade ground at the Silver Marmot Grill, he said there was at least 90 seconds of sheer terror hoping that they had measured the rope the right length or he was going to have this thing come down on top of him. It was a different time back then, or at least so we're told. In the 1930s, Camp Parsons had a 70-foot-tall signal tower built by scouts and climbed by scouts with no ropes or harnesses. Up until the 1950s, scouts used to come by boat, not car, for two weeks, not one, and individually rather than with their troop. During the second week, most would either hike into the Olympic Mountains, but some would take a sea voyage. The scouts were grouped into sections, each with their own campsite, and a song they would sing in the dining hall. Scouts who had more experience at Camp Parsons, and were at least 15, could join and live in the Mariner section, which specialized in aquatics, the Ranger section, which emphasized forestry and woodcraft, or the Explorer section, which spent nearly the entire time in the Olympic Mountains. The Rangers lived in a cabin on the outskirts of camp, which still exists today. Whereas those senior Mariner scouts got to live in a two-story cabin on the edge of the then 500-foot-long pier. 20-foot-long whaleboats were the popular way for scouts to travel by water, and swimming was bathing suit optional. Older generations contend that these were rougher times. But as easy as it is to reminisce about the good old days, it is similarly easy to point out all the things that haven't changed at Camp Parsons. Because Camp Parsons has never ceased operation, even during World War II, traditions have been passed down from one year to the next. One of those traditions have been the camp-wide campfires that have always happened at the end of each session, and today happen at the beginning of those sessions as well. The scouts still gather at Campfire Point, a small peninsula with a large semicircle bowl of wooden bleachers that open up to the Puget Sound. Today, the path toward the campfire bowl is marked by softly lit ominous posts, each emblazed with a point of the scout law. The final sign, which hangs above you as you enter the bowl, declares in bold capitalized letters, Here, all trails end. For the scouts that return from hiking in the mountains, this literally is the end of their week-long journey. But as we will learn, there is an even greater meaning to that prose. Today, songs are still sung, skits are still acted out, and campfire stories are still told with a crackling fire in Jackson Cove serving as the background. Some songs, like Johnny Verbeck, have been sung at Camp Parsons since 1919 when the camp first opened. That song is about a butcher that builds a machine to grind the neighbor's cats and dogs into sausage. In the last verse, his wife pushes him into the machine, only for himself to become sausage. Another skit that has been performed regularly in recent decades pokes fun at those old-timers who boast about how rough and tough the good old days were. You wouldn't be experiencing a week of Camp Parsons if you didn't get to experience a little bit of Camp Parsons campfires. While the campers have their own skits and songs they get to sing on most weeknights in their campsites, these special all-camp campfires on Sunday and Friday nights are put on by the Camp Parsons staff. This ensures the high production value, comedic relief, and well-built bonfire every good campfire ought to have. Well, most of the time. You're listening to Where All Trails End, and this is a little taste of the Camp Parsons Campfire. 
we began with the Four Yorkshiremen skit, a Camp Parsons staple. Performed here by Camp Parsons staff members Josh Paley, James Wireman, Dylan Morligan, and myself. The arthritis is really kicking in. Nothing like a good old glass of Chateau de Parsons. You're right there, Josiah. You're right there, Lennox. Who would have thought 30 years ago we'd be sitting right here drinking a good old glass of Chateau de Parsons, eh? In them days, we'd be glad to afford the price of a cup of tea. A cup of cold tea. Without cream or sugar. Or tea. In a crack cup and everything. A crack cup, you say? We used to drink it out of a roll of newspaper. <laughs> a rolled up newspaper. The best we could manage was to drink our tea out of a damp cloth. <laughs> but we were happy in those days, though we were poor. Because we were poor. My old man used to say to me, son, money doesn't buy you happiness. I was right. Ah, he was. In those old days, I used to have to live in a house with great big holes in the roof. A house. The best we could manage was to live in a room. All 26 of us. We'd huddle against the walls for fear of falling in the giant holes in the floor. A house. A room, you say? We used to have to live in a hallway. A hallway? We used to dream of living in a hallway. What a better palace to us. We had to live inside of a water tank in a garbage dump. We woke up at 6 a.m. every morning having a hot load of trash dumped all over us. A hallway, you say. Well, hold on. <laughs> hold on here, boys. When I say house, what I really meant was a was a, a hole in the ground with, with great big holes in the roof that we would cover with a sheet of top. <laughs> a hole in the ground. We were evicted from our hole in the ground. We had to go live in a lake. A lake, you say? That's right. Well, I would have worn a fancy bow tie or, or perhaps pleated slacks had I known I was in the presence of such wealth and affluence. Affluence! We had to live, all 150 of us, in a shoebox in the middle of the road. A shoebox? A shoebox, I. Shoebox? We used to dream of living in a shoebox. We used to live in a paper bag inside of a septic tank. We woke up at 5 a.m. every morning, clean the paper bag, eat a crust of stale bread, and then go to work at the mill for 14 hours a day. Oh, we used to have to get up out of the lake and lick the lake clean. And then we'd eat a cup of hot gravel for breakfast. And we'd go down to the mill and work 20 hours a day for four pence every two months. And when we got home, we were lucky if our ma and dad would thrash us with a bottle. 20 hours a day, you say? Warm gravel? Well, we used to have to wake up at 12 o'clock at night, work 24 hours a day at the mill with only two bits of cold gravel every morning. And we had to lick the road clean with our tongues to work. And then when we got home, our parents would cut us into bite-sized tasty morsels with a dull bread knife. Oh, 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 get up at 10 o'clock that night, the night before going to bed, get up, work 29 hours a day, drink a cup of cold sulfuric acid, and when we come home, 
actually waiting there for us, and they would kill us and dance upon our graves. Say hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Kill you, you say? We used to dream of being killed by our Will you tell the youngins of that today? No, no, they won't believe you. Oh, no, they won't. I blame the hip hop.
eyes within your face my heart's an open wound that only you'd replace and though the moon is rising can put your picture down love can be frightening when you time is right, I hope that you respond, like when the wind gets tired, the ocean becomes calm, I may be dreaming, but I'm longing to joining us here at Camp Parsons for your week of summer camp this year. This week, I hope each one of you had the chance to earn a new merit badge, learn a new skill, or make a new friend. But most importantly, I hope each one of you had a good time. Please remember to remain reverent as you exit the Campfire Bowl, keeping your voices low and your flashlights off. Now will the Campfire Bowl please rise, and the staff please join me in the middle for the singing of Scouting Vespers. Because the light of day, as our campfire fades away, silently each scout should ask, have I done my daily task? Have I kept my honor bright? Can I guiltless sleep tonight? Have I done and have I dared? Everything to be prepared. Listen, Lord, oh, listen, Lord, as I whisper soft and low. Bless my mom and bless my dad. There is something they should know. I have kept my honor bright. The oath and law have been my guide. Mom and Dad, this you should know, deep in my heart I love you so. You're listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest.
p.m. Eastern Time and 7.15 p.m. Pacific Time. Welcome back to episode three of We're All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest, where we get to learn what a week of camping on the Hood Canal is like. Now that we've heard about Camp Parsons before the 1950s, we're learning about what camp is like for the scouts of today. We've already gotten to experience Camp Parsons' oldest tradition, the CP Campfire. Now it's time we get to know about another defining part of the Camp Parsons experience, the 555-foot-long Camp Parsons Pier. It's the longest pier at any Boy Scout camp in the country. Rebuilt three times, most recently in 1982, the pier provides access to fishing, sailboats, motorboats, rowboats, and perhaps the most fun of all, the Camp Parsons Pier Jump. The Pier Jump provides the unique experience of jumping into salt water that's often full of waves and is constantly changing height due to the large tide changes common in the Pacific Northwest. For young scouts especially, this can be a challenge they've never faced before. There's no better time to try it than during the Beach Bonanza, an all-camp beach party where the end of the pier is removed, allowing for a large runway ending in midair. All right, make sure you jump out to your left and you jump out to your right, okay? And three, two, one, go! Come on out, guys! Hello, my name is Alexander. This is my first time at Parsons. What have been some of the highlights of your week? Definitely the pier. Yeah? Pier and wilderness survival outpost was fun. What was so cool about the pier? The pier? Uh, I love the thrill whenever I got down there. Yeah, it took you a little while the first time, huh? Oh, yeah, it took me a long time. And, and what was that like? So, whenever I first went up and I looked down, like, I was thinking this is the first time I've ever looked down the pier. And I thought to myself, I shouldn't have looked down because that's really far down. And I got my a lot of adrenaline pumping and stress anxiety because I'm I have a fear of heights, like a really big fear. So, and after a while the bell rang, which means the pier had to be shut down, and I really wanted to do it. So, I go I went ahead and I did it with you, which was it was actually really cool because I've never actually done something with a lifeguard before. It's like my first time. So, and Leland helped a lot too. But whenever I got down, the drop was like, it was fun. The stress turned into like happy stress. And then I got down and I looked back up and I'm like, that's not tall at all. Because I saw the bar and I counted the feet. It was five feet, which is pretty high. Yeah. And then at Beach Bonanza, I did it again whenever they opened the gates and I just ran off without even looking. It was it was really fun. So if you get fear of the pier jump, definitely do it. Don't don't let your gut take you out of it. I will probably not have lots of fears often about heights because there's a lot of things in Idaho that I do and like rock climbing. I do do rock climbing. Um but rope courses, I'm terrified of those so i'm definitely going to try those now so what's it like at the beginning of the week versus the end so at the beginning of the week i was like yeah i'm fine with this middle of the week i was kind of like wanting a little bit to go home because i have serious family separation anxiety but then end of the week like right now the past two days i want to stay honestly i want to stay it's so fun and you said you had a pretty good time on Wilderness Survival, too? What was that like? Oh, yeah, Outpost. It was amazing. I built a lean-to with my friends. It was nice. So for those that might not know what Outpost is... Outpost out here is beautiful. I mean, it's amazing. There's this one part, there's a creek and everything. Like, wow, it's pretty It's pretty nice. But there's lots of uh, scotch um, broom and a foxglove, which you got to be aware of because... Foxglove is not too good. So you go up to this place, and then what do you do up there? Uh, you build your shelters. It's at free time. So you have like about 30 minutes, 45 minutes of shelter building time. So we did that, and then we came later that night. We went back, came later that night, uh, and we slept. And I 
I had like 30 minute intervals of sleep. It was weird. Like I would like sleep for 30 minutes, wake up, and then I'd, like, go back to sleep. It's like, and my friend talked to me whenever I woke up. You were cold. Yeah, I was very cold. It was cold out there. Were you scared? No, I was not scared of Outpost. I was actually, I was more comfortable at Outpost than my tent, honestly, because the tents like are like they're small. I had all the space in the world at Outpost. Yeah, you mentioned there 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 are a lot of spiders here at Camp Parsons. Huh? Some of your oh, friends are afraid of those. And me just a little. Like I'm afraid of the bigger ones. Like there's like some small ones in my tent. And I'll be like just. But you pointed out to me before, right? That uh, yeah, they're important to the ecosystem. They are very important. They eat mosquitoes. I had one mosquito bite, and it was on my ankle, which I had an allergic reaction to, which was not fun. <laughs> well, that's cool. So, yeah. So why why did you join scouting at the beginning? I did not want to do scouting. Um, I, but over the time, over this year so far, I actually really do enjoy scouting. So I will probably continue doing it. My dad made a deal with me, and now I know why he made this deal. He said, you can quit efforts first class. I have everything signed off for Tenderfoot in second class. I just need my conferences done. And once I have that done, if I get first class, What's the point of quitting if I enjoy it so much? And I'm already halfway there to Eagle. Well, I'll let you know uh, a secret. My dad kind of played the same trick on me. So when I was a scout, it was okay, but my troop was kind of small. and It wasn't as cool as some of these other troops. Not as exciting as your troop. And I remember that I signed up for summer camp to come here as a provisional scout. I didn't want to go. I wanted to quit scouting completely. I was on the verge of quitting. And I was maybe, I think, the same place, a second-class scout or something like that. My dad forced me to go, I was, and uh, once I got here, it wasn't very fun the first day, but by the end of the week, like you, I didn't want to leave, me. and now I've been here for seven years, or in count, counting the years I was a scout, I think this is my ninth year, kind of crazy. Yeah. As special as Alex's story is, fortunately, it's not unique. One of the great things about being a camp counselor is that you get to witness scouts overcome their fears all the time. You often get to help them. Like I told Alexander, I too have great memories of the first week I came to Camp Parsons. What I found almost 10 years ago in the desolate wilderness of the Olympic Peninsula in the center of Jackson Cove were friends and memories I am told by those who came before me, and I do believe will last a lifetime. Now that we've heard from a scout whose troop made the trek from Idaho, so scouts like Alexander could experience their first and perhaps only week at Camp Parsons, it's time we hear from some of Camp Parsons' legacy troops. Legacy troops have been coming to Camp Parsons for decades. They have rich histories that oftentimes stretch back to the camp's earliest years of troop camping. They are troops that come to Camp Parsons every year. Oftentimes, legacy troops try and come the same week so that they can compete against one another for the highly coveted Best Troop in Camp Award. To win the award, your troop must win the Hall Blue All Camp Competition. The competition is one of the many program features that was added after Camp Parsons switched to troop camping. It is comprised of a patrol teamwork competition, a cross-camp relay race that includes running, canoeing, and swimming, and the Octopus Cup canoe race that's course is longer than a mile, stretching all the way to the edge of Jackson Cove. We go now to the end of the Camp Parsons Pier, where I ask some Seattle-based Troop 186 scouts about what it's like to be a member of a troop that boasts more than 70 members and has had well-known Seattleites, such as Bill Gates Jr. and their troop. Though Gates founded a company that was at one point the largest in the world, there was a time in his life where he was once just a regular Boy Scout, attending Camp Parsons with the rest of his troop. More on that later. When people tell you that scouting isn't cool, so they haven't tried 186. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's some facts. What, what, what is your troop differently? Well, I think with a lot of troops, they try to get kids to Eagle real quick. They try to get them in, and then they get them. And mm. once people hit Eagle, they don't really—they're not as active in the troop anymore. I think Troop 186 does a good job of keeping activities geared to. A, whole lot of age groups that you keep people you know like me and joe are going into senior year coming back you know still coming back and participating yeah 
And our troop is completely scout-led. Or That's true. So, Tell me about what that means. I mean, we make all the decisions, we call the shots, <clears throat> and the adults are just there to make sure we don't kill ourselves. Let me ask you guys this. Somebody explain to me this business thing you run. So this kid was selling, like, chips and stuff out of his tent and candy, and the staff didn't like that. And so, because it was undercutting the trading post, and then Dave DeLarco was like, what if we do a burger bar? So it's good food for not that much money. It doesn't really take away the stuff that they sell at the trading post, and it's yeah, you're not getting a Healthy. cheeseburger. You're not getting a cheeseburger at the trading post. It's yeah. a good exercise so, in investing as well. So, um, so the, I'm in charge of the burger bar this year, and every year we send out an initial ask at our uh, spring court of honor. So we send out that ask. We get about two to three hundred dollars as a result of that, and then we'll go and we'll send subsequent uh, emails out. You know, we'll this year we raised over twelve hundred dollars, which is a new maximum. You know, that's our new high. And then we go and we invest. We got. You know, burgers, uh, burgers, patties, cheese, um, and then a couple other specialties. This year we're doing gyros. And um, <clears throat> so the scouts get the entrepreneurship merit badge that are part of it, right? Uh, if they if they want to pursue that. Okay, and, and where does the profits go? What, what happens to that? Are there profits? Uh, we, we put them into the 186 scholarship fund. All of them? All of the profits. You're in charge of making that happen? Uh, we are in charge of making that happen, yeah. Troop 186 is certainly a rambunctious bunch, and their troop style isn't for everybody. Each troop has its own way of running things, some more successful than others. One common factor I've seen in every successful troop, big or small, relaxed or strict, is that the good ones are always scout-led. Later in the week, I caught up with Troop 186 once again, right as they won the Hallblue Relay Race. Afterwards, I spoke with one of their longtime assistant scoutmasters, Mike Collier. He had a lot to say. Time in a row, you mean? Yeah, for the 20th time in a row. 28. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Feels great. Awesome. Uh, uh, some of the runners. Are you guys runners? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was uh, thinking. I was first like, I was just thinking go straight. I was just thinking run fast, keep my head down, and pass it to my man Joe here. Now, who's the last runner? Who's the last runner? Jackson. 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 What was running through your mind when you saw that guy? Well, okay. So I saw. I, I was looking down the hill. I see Robin, right behind the guy in the what was the red shirt. And I was like, darn, this is, this is big. And then Oscar was like, ooh, that's tight. I was like, yeah, it was. So I started screaming Rob's name. Rob comes up around the corner. He's in front. I'm like, Rob, Rob. I get the baton. And I hoof it, and my back hurts really bad. And I'm coming down the corner. I see Chris. I'm like, yes, Chris. And I see all the boys. And then we win. All I know I see Cole way behind, dude. In second place, he's gone. The other guy's just creaming him. I get it, and I'm speed walking. This guy is like halfway up the stairs. I'm at the beach. I'm like, Blake gives me gives me the look. He's like, it's time to go. I'm like, we're zooming. A second later, I'm right behind him, going right behind him. So just on his tail, like move. What would you like to say to all the spectators? We're just really trying not to let down the older scouts that were here before us, and that's really why we're trying so hard. Yeah. Really just a we wanna, trying to have some fun. Yeah, trying to keep the spirit alive. Yep. And it's working. Mike, thanks for joining me today. So how long have you been coming to Camp Parsons, and has it always been with Troop 186? I first came to Camp Parsons in 1960 with Troop 180, which also happens to be Dan Evans' old troop. I... 186 was formed in 1963, and I got a chance to be a patrol leader, so I transferred over And when 186 was born. Camp Parsons was full that year, so we end up, ended up going to Camp Amachi, and I went to Camp Parsons with 180. And then how many years have you been coming to Camp Parsons? I think I've only missed a couple. So did, were you around when Dan Evans was in the troop, too? Or that was before no, no, your no, time, he's, right? He's, he's quite, much older than you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. So 186, you know, they. it was funny today. I interviewed some of the scouts after the relay race. They're a really prideful troop, huh? I mean, it seems like they have a lot of good spirit. Has it always been that way? Yes. 
it has always been that way. Um, yeah, they take, they really like this camp a lot, and they look forward to it every year, and they put a lot of effort into um, the competition and just having a, a good time here and, and, of course, working on their advancements. So what, what do you think fosters that type of attitude hmm. um, and spirit? I think it's having scouts spend a lot of time together in the outdoors all year round, getting to know each other, building friendships. Um, I think good adult leadership helps a lot, too. You were an assistant scoutmaster, right, when Bill Gates was in the troop. Can you yes. tell me a little bit about that? I, uh, I have a lot of memories of him, but none of them really pertain to camp. He came to camp, and in those years we stayed at Mount Constance. He, obviously, Bill didn't get his Eagle Scout. He didn't, he didn't finish like his dad did. People question how much he was actually involved in scouting. What, what degree would you say he was? I'd say he was quite involved in scouting all the way up to 17. And when he got his life, I helped him with his uh, public service that he needed to get his life. We did some work at some garbage cleanup at Ronald Bog on 175th and the freeway. But no, Bill was, he was very active in, tr in the troop all the way to the end. I remember in some outing to South Whidbey State Park, he was tr teaching the younger kids how to make long-distance phone calls at the phone booth without having to pay for them. He's always trying to game the system a little bit, I thought. Really? Yeah, which is kind of interesting. So tell me yeah. about, do you remember how he did that? No, uh-uh. <laughs> but he used to tell me, well, I'm, he used to tell me how he'd try to figure out ways of, he'd go to the UW to work on their computers and he was always kind of trying to figure out way how, ways of how he could get some free time on the computers <laughs> so remember, remember one time I was at his house and I went down to the basement we were getting ready to go on a, a big trip and I walked past the rec room and uh, Governor Evans and his wife are in playing uh, bridge with, his, with Bill's parents and I said wow it's the governor and he goes oh yeah yeah I suppose you want to <laughs> I suppose you want to meet them and I go yeah well yeah sure who wouldn't so he introduced me to them. That was kind of kind of fun. It's funny how that you know how they all kind of knew each other and are our friends still to this day. I, I talked to Dan earlier in this podcast series, and he mentioned that that he's good friends with Bill Gates Senior. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool that they all hang out like that. Bill's mom was a good sport about picking us up on hikes in the Olympics. Mary Gates, she one time she picked us up uh, the end on the. Lower Alina Lake Trailhead on the Hamahama after we'd hiked across the Olympics. And a lot of parents didn't like doing this, driving on logging roads and such. But I remember she picked us up and she, go, she goes, oh, by the way, I got a flat tire because I got a rock stuck in my tire well. But, you know, it's no big deal. I changed it. And she never, <laughs> you know, she did things like that and never complained, which I always appreciated. I mean, in what ways do you think through the years that you did you see Bill grow? He was pretty typical of a... <clears throat> Of a lot of the scouts in our troop at that time, yeah, he was a good sport. He had good sense of humor. Um, he worked hard. He he thought he complained a lot, but I, I don't remember it that way at all. Um, as I remember, one time we hiked across the Olympics. We went up the Elwan and then down the Quinault. Well, we went up the Elwan at the Low Divide. I said, well, we got a couple days to kill. Let's hike down the North Fork of the Quinault. And he was like, no, that sounds like a lot of extra hiking. <laughs> <laughs> so I put it to a vote, and he lost. But, but anyway, he was a good sport about it. So, yeah, we hiked all the way down the Quinault, then turned around and hiked all the way back up to the Low Divide and back down the Elwha River again. Uh, it sounds like 186 Loves Camp Parsons. They're here every single year. I mean, what would you say to people out there who don't know Camp Parsons? Well, the location's hard to beat. Beautiful Puget, Puget Sound and Hood Canal and uh, salt water and the beaches and all the water activities, canoeing and sailing and kayaking and small boat sailing and a lot of things like, uh, like say, for the, the troops from Texas, you know, they're getting a lot of first-hand experience and things that they've never had the opportunity to do before. And then there's, the, of course, the staff at camp, which a lot of the adult leaders here have told me is the best they've ever seen at any scout camp, and that enriches the experience and and uh, of the scouts who come here and the history um your own son was on staff right yes my son was on staff here two two summers taught swimming mm -hmm. i worked with him yeah he was a very funny good very guy good guy yeah really good <coughs> teacher of swimming he did it all summer long 
<laughs> yeah, I remember that. He loved mm-hmm. to swim. Mm-hmm. When I was assistant scoutmaster, I used to look at what what did scouting do for the kids. And the first thing I always felt that it, it got kids is to learn how to take care of themselves in the outdoors and provide opportunities for outdoor adventure. And the second thing I always felt was was friendship and uh, making friends with people who have kind of a similar interests and, and want to do the same kind of thing. You build it's something about being with people in the outdoors, especially hiking, where you really get to know them because you're like you're spending all day hiking with them, you're cooking with them, and uh, you're st- sitting around a campfire at night telling stories. That's really, a, I think, probably one of the best ways to get to know somebody and, and develop friendship. When people think about somebody like Bill Gates, for instance, they don't think avid outdoorsman. They think, okay. you know, tech entrepreneur, geeky kid. Do you think he had the same love for the outdoors? I think... Or developed it? I think Bill is similar to most kids. I think he, he liked the outdoors. But I'm not so sure he loved the outdoors. But I, di- I tell you what he did love, and that was being with his friends in the outdoors and just spending, you know, telling jokes and just spending time with each other and getting to know each other better because he really did enjoy taking these trips in the outdoors. All good things have an end. After the Hall Blue competitions on Friday, the troops have their final meal and song in the dining hall go to closing campfire, wake up the next morning for a brief closing ceremony, and then head home. In a matter of minutes, the parking lot is empty, and the noise scouts make that can often be heard across the cove is gone. If it's the beginning or middle of the summer, the quiet can be a relief. The staff has been working around the clock all week, and they know that in about 25 hours, the camp will be full of scouts once again. But at the end of the summer, the quiet quickly becomes eerie, Visiting camp in the off-season never feels the same as it does when camp is in session. Something is missing. when I was on the staff to be there a little later, maybe packing up my suitcases or whatever. And, and I had uh, said to myself, let me take one last walk through the camp here just, just to say goodbye because the summer's over and everybody else is pretty well left. And it's kind of eerie because suddenly uh, all those kids aren't there. There's no kids running down the trails. There's no kids uh, shouting in the background. But then it all kind of came back to me almost like um, I could see them in the past, like they're, they're always going to be there. You're all, you always... Uh, if you've experienced the camp, uh, you just feel the kids never really leave in a sense. So, so 
I wanted to sum it up. This is called Late Summer at Camp Parsons. I stayed behind in camp one time. The boys were all on a mountain climb. So I thought that I would be alone as I wandered in the places where I once had seen their faces and the sun still warmly shone. When something in the woods began to stir, and then I wasn't sure. Did I hear a bit of laughter in the breeze or a glimpse a khaki shirt among the trees? Was it a memory that could never fail or did I hear the sounds of boys? The happy noise of running on the trail. It seemed that they were there. Their sights and sounds were everywhere. Alone on the swim beach, I thought of summer days now out of reach. But there in the water, was it real? A boy splashing and bobbing like a seal? In the dining hall, did I hear dishes clatter, a hundred hungry boys and their excited chatter, and hundreds more from all the years before? On campfire point, I closed my eyes and wood smoke seemed to rise. The ashes of a thousand fires were kindled into flame. The past and present were the same. The songs were sung by men who somehow turned to boys again. A story was told in the fading glow, as on that point in summers long ago, the story of the camp is the campfire story all should know. At last, the final ember disappeared. The boys grew old in the passing years. They cast long shadows they attained in commerce, government, and more. And yet, their small, quick shadows remained under those trees and along the shore. For some of them we grieve, yet part of each will never leave. Is that a bugle in the night? Is it taps resounding from the pier, seeming far off but always near, or call to colors quick and bright? Three fingers in a sharp salute, a cannon for the staff to shoot, a 48-star flag unfurled. Have no fear, the boys are all still here from when this camp was first begun. Grown old in the world, but forever young. I think campfires are very special. It shows you that boys haven't changed because I think that, that to some extent we're, we're not just like boys used to be in 1910, um, but the kids of today are the same as boys were a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, when, um, for example, the, the men of the tribe would take the boys out and teach them how to hunt and teach them how to, how to fish. And uh, in the evening, they'd build a fire and they'd sit around and tell the boys stories about the tribe and, and uh, what their value system was. They'd pass that on to them. So when we, we were starting a, a troop in 2004 for our church, and um, I'd been, I finally retired then and I had a little time. So I meet some of the kids <laughs> that were trying to recruit into this. And they, they, at that point, they had Game Boys and they couldn't put them down. They, they always got these little giz gizmos. Now it's even worse. But even in 2004, they had, they had these little Game Boys. They were playing Game Boy games on them and stuff like that all the time. And I thought, this is never going to work. You can't take kids like this out. There's no special effects. You can't tell them a campfire story. They'll just immediately zone out and be bored. So we took them out on a hike and uh, gathered around the campfire. And I, here goes nothing. And started into a story. And they all went into that same kind of a trance that boys go into. You know, their eyes became big as saucers because their brain turns your turns the eyes off and and what you're doing is you're seeing with your mind actually uh, and your brain ignores what your what your eyes are seeing besides that it's, it's very simple it's the fire it's the darkness uh, and something totally magic happened they loved the story no special effects or anything because their brains were, were providing all the special effects they were they were it, it's just so deeply ingrained and I realized uh, never tell a campfire story ever that doesn't illustrate scouting spirit somewhere Always have a moral in there because you got the kids' attention totally. So punch it home with something that always is meaningful to them because it'll stay with them. And I think partly that's the idea of here all trails in. Uh, we all come together there and something magic happens. And and partly it's the stories, the songs, the fellowship. But in that setting, the fire that slowly dies down and kind of takes our attention with it. So, so that our, our eyes grow bigger <laughs> and we can see better and better what our mind wants to see. Uh, it's, it's a golden opportunity, really.
In the next and final episode of Where All Trails End, we'll tell the stories of brotherhood that define the Camp Parsons staff experience. You'll hear from staff members, both young and old, describe how their time at Camp Parsons shaped the rest of their lives. Only after hearing from them can we return to the question posed in episode one of this series. Does scouting still fulfill the ends it was originally created for? Is it worth preserving? If you enjoy this podcast and want more information, or if you would like to receive an update when the next show comes out, please log on to www.wherealltrailsend.com. That's www.wherealltrailsend.com. You can also follow Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D on Twitter. This podcast has been made possible by Hillsdale College. Excerpts from this podcast have been taken with permission from the Boys of Summer by Michael Bruce Johnson. I'm Ben Dietrich, Camp Parsons staff member and radio host for Radio Free Hillsdale. Thank you for listening.